there's two points in this passage we're looking at where there's confusion or lack of clarity about bread. We just read one of them. It's quite funny, right? Jesus says, watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. It seems obviously metaphorical, but they're going, okay, so I think, I think the master's dropping a hint. I think we need to suss out our bread supplies. Anyone here good with like, anyone getting to sourdough during lockdown? And, and we're sort of, it's, guys, come on, it was a metaphor. Um, earlier, there's another little cryptic one in 6.15. As we will see, there's a lot of kind of mirrored stories throughout this section, Mark chapter five to eight. Uh, so there's two feedings with loaves, two water, miraculous water crossings, lake crossings. And in 6 verse 52, we're told that when they marvel at Jesus walking on the water, it, uh, it says they were completely amazed, 6.52, for they had not understood about the loaves. Right then. <laughs> so if you understand about the loaves, then you'll understand about the water crossing. There was actually a sermon from another university group in Sydney years ago on this passage, Mark 6, which was just called Understanding Loaves. <laughs> and it began with that point, Understanding Loaves. So that, I guess that highlights the fact that being promote, prompted to question being confronted with cryptic things. Last night, we looked at the riddles of the kingdom just briefly, talked about how the sower parable would have been a riddle to the original hearers that prompted some to come to Jesus afterwards and say, can you please explain the parable to us? Being prompted to ask is one of the things that we see in the Gospels. And look, it is just in general uh, a great way of learning. Asking questions um, and hearing answers to questions engages a sort of a pulling together ideas, a synthesising, a balancing out. It's a really excellent way to learn. So by you asking questions, you're actually helping all of us learn. But getting in the habit of asking questions is also a great way to think. One of the people I learned to preach from, um, the former principal of Sydney Missionary Bible College, David Cook, used to say that one of the keys to developing a really rich and biblical sermon is, in addition to many other steps, you get to a point where you just bombard the text with questions. <laughs> Just that whatever passage you're preaching on, just I think, what else can you ask of it? How else can you look at it? What are you, how do you think, what's another angle? What's confusing? What's strange? What, how does it relate to what came before? What goes afterwards? What's in the Old Testament? What's later in the New? All that kind of stuff. Because actually asking questions and getting better at asking questions um, actually helps you think. And it's one of those things where you know you really don't know about a topic when you can't even think of a good question to ask about the topic. You know, so if you walked into like a third year physics if you're an arts student or third year literature if you're a physics student, uh, assuming you're not learning about those things in your spare time, um, if someone said anyone, any questions, then you'd stick up your hand and go, huh? That would be about the best question you could come up with, you know? Um, so, but actually, as you learn more, you get better at asking questions, and as you ask more questions, you get better at you learn more, and it, it becomes this virtuous cycle. Whereas if you don't ask questions because you're embarrassed that it will be the wrong question, or you'll look dumb, or um, whatever it is, then that will be a vicious cycle of you'll consistently know less. You know, uh, you'll get you won't get the opportunity to grow in your thinking and knowing. I'll pray. And then we'll dive into um, this morning's sermon. Heavenly Father, please help us now as we come to your word. Fill our minds and our hearts with open, believing questions. Seeking to know you better. To trust you more deeply. To become more like you in our thoughts, in our desires, in our words, in our actions. Help me speak what is true. And help me speak clearly and persuasively. Help us hear well. Hear truly and believingly. In Jesus' name. 
Amen. Amen. As I said last night, that, that Mark's Gospel asks the question, who is Jesus and what does he come to do? What kind, yeah, he, he tells the very beginning he's the Messiah. Then it's, it takes us on this journey of everyone asking, who is Jesus? And then what, what kind of king, what kind of Jesus is he? What, what, what has he come to do? The first half of the book, roughly speaking, chapters 1 through to 8, is especially focused on who is Jesus, who is Jesus, who is Jesus. The second half of the book we'll look at tonight, that turning point, halfway through chapter 8, then switches across to, so if that's who he is, if he is the Messiah, the Son of God, what did he come to do? And so you get that in 8.27. Who does others say I am? Who do you say I am? Finally, the Apostle Peter gets it. You're Christ, the Son of God. And then Jesus says, yes, you're right. And guess what? I've come to die on the cross for the salvation of the world. Who is Jesus? Chapter 1 to 8. What has he come to do? Die on the cross. Chapters 8 through to 16. Um, so we're right deep today, this morning, chapters 5 through to 8, or the end of chapter 4, through to the halfway through chapter 8. We're deep in the section of who is Jesus. In some ways, it's the least focused on the cross, the theological theme of this week. Um, however, it all points towards that. It shows why he's the one fitting to save the world. And there are always hints pointing to the cross, even here. Yeah. Who is this? The first half has already been asking. In chapter 1, when he drives out demons, people say, what is this? 127, a new teaching and with authority, he even gives orders to evil spirits. And they obey him. And news about him spreads everywhere. In chapter 2, when the paralytic is lowered through the roof by his loyal friends to seek a blessing and healing from Jesus. Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. And there's scandal. Who does this person think he is? Who can forgive sins but God alone? They took offence at him, didn't they? Chapter 2. Uh, in chapter 3, we didn't zero in on this story too much. Um, uh, but we find in chapter 3, towards the end of chapter 3, that people are looking at Jesus um, in, say, verse uh, 21 and 22, some are saying he's out of his mind, his family. Others are saying he's demon-possessed and so can do these dealings with demons. Yeah? And then as we come into chapter 5, 6, 7, at the very end of chapter 4, as Jesus calms a storm, his disciples say, verse 41, very last verse of chapter 4, Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Who is Jesus? And you know what? Out of that question, that exact question, who is Jesus, and the dawning understanding of just how great Jesus is, that's really historically how Christians began to clarify their doctrine of the Trinity, the, the idea of God as Father, Son, and Spirit. It's, it kind of began with this question of how do you make sense of all that Jesus is, all he can do, all he means for us, how central he is to our faith and our salvation and our worship, almost compelled to say, we've got to say he's God. And, and that's historically how that got sharpened and, and clarified in those um, early decades and centuries of the church. Here is this divinely powerful one who has come to die and to save. Got three headings this morning. Firstly, we get to look at this Jesus as powerful and compassionate. It's really awesome. We saw it even in that reading, right? He looks and has compassion on the crowds. He provides for them. Powerful and compassionate. Secondly, right and wrong responses, belief and unbelief. The right and wrong responses to this powerful and compassionate saviour. And thirdly, his mission to the world. So 
powerful and compassionate right and wrong response or belief and unbelief mission to the world. Firstly, powerful and compassionate. Um, in this section, there's a lot of kind of paired accounts, like mirrored accounts, similar things happen. Two crossings of a lake, two feedings of large crowds, two sections of teaching, two sections of miracles. It's, it's an interesting balanced um, section. You could think about it as sort of perhaps panels on some kind of uh, series of artworks or, um, or architecture or something like this. Or, uh, yeah, again, a series of sections or chapters or stanzas in a poem or something, like, however you like to uh, imagine it. Um, and so we have these sea crossings is what we'll look at first that show us that Jesus is powerful and compassionate. 4 verses 37 and following. A furious squall came up, the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind, said to the waves, Be quiet, be still. The wind died down, it was completely calm, and he said to his disciples, Why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? And they were terrified and asked each other, Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. And 649 50, we get to the second of those. They saw him walking on the lake. They thought he was a ghost and they cried out because when they saw him, they were terrified. And immediately he spoke to them and said, Take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. He climbed into the boat with them and the wind died down. They were completely amazed. And as we've already looked at in verse 52, they, they were amazed but they didn't get it because they didn't understand the loaves back to that. But the, the first of these crossings in chapter 4, the questions there, in some ways, I think stylistically, set us up for this whole section. There are three great questions that are kind of three great themes of this section. Don't you care if we drown? Oh man, he cares. He's the compassionate one. Yeah? Um, why are you so afraid? Don't you have faith? The right response. Remember that's going to be the second heading? The right response? Have faith. Yeah? Don't be afraid, have faith. And, and, um, and then also, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Powerful and compassionate. Don't you care? Compassionate. Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Powerful. What's the right response? Do you still have no faith? Isn't that cool? That, as, that little setup as Mark has written the gospel. Again, it's possible that this stuff came out of some of the early Christians speak about Mark as coming out of Mark following along. Um, Peter's early preaching. Um, and if that's the case, then I guess it makes sense that there's these clever little kind of flourishes, you know, that comes out of a sermon-type format. There's these little bits that have kind of teeth in them, <laughs> if you know what I mean. Um, uh, in the Bible, in the Old Testament, as you read a, a bunch of that, you'll see the sea, the lakes, these massive, these are massive lakes we're talking about here, not, not kind of like a cute little sort of dam with some ducks on it. Um, yeah, huge lakes can you know, sp stir up into massive storms quite quickly and quite reckless, dangerously. For a people who are not a really big, you know, when the Jews weren't like the Vikings or something, they're not like a massive seagoing people. And so the sea is this terrifying, open, exposed, frightful place. It's a, it's a symbol of chaos. Why in Revelation is that strange little verse, the new heavens and the new earth, there'll no longer be any sea. What's wrong with the sea? I like surfing. No surfing in heaven? It's again using the symbology of the Bible, where sea is this place of chaos and massive monsters of the deep and so on. Um, 
The creation separates the waters from the waters to bring order. Uh, the, the, the flood collapses the waters in the waters to bring a kind of primal chaos again in the judgment of the flood. The exodus, again, separates waters from water, doesn't it? As Israel is rescued um, out of uh, Egypt. And here's Jesus then, <laughs> just like the Lord God separated waters from waters, waters above and waters below and created, brought the waters down in judgment in the flood, separated the waters um, at the word of Moses in the Exodus. Just as the Lord God did that, just as the Psalms say, the Lord is the one who rules over the roaring seas and walks upon the waters. Who's this one then? Who can talk to the waters like the misbehaving kid in Sunday school? Quiet, sit down, hands on heads. <laughs> um, all right, everybody. <laughs> it just does one more. So you can't have, yeah, anyway. Quiet, Mikey. Um, <laughs> yeah, there we go. Okay, all right. Um, then we see Jesus with other forms of chaos, demon possession, death, and defilement. Chapter 5 gives us this string of stories of people in wretched situations, people whose lives are ruined, the demoniacs. Uh, here, well, Mark presents us with one, doesn't he? Matthew tells us there were actually two of them. But here is this one in the Gerasenes. Jesus got out of the boat, verse 2. There's a man with an evil spirit from the tombs to meet him. The man lived in the tombs. How awful is this? Lives in the tombs. No one can bind him or restrain him. He's often been chained hand and foot and tears those chains apart. No one can subdue him night and day among the tombs and the hills. He'll cry out and cut himself with stones. What a wretched, tormented existence this guy has. Or Jairus' daughter, this person in many ways with a great deal of social status and, and stability in life, but we're all vulnerable to lose even those dearest to us. It's a terrible thing ever for a parent to have to bury their own child. Uh, see Jesus, he fell at his feet and pleaded with him, my little daughter is dying, please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. Verse 35 while Jesus was still speaking, some men came from Jairus' house, the synagogue ruler, your daughter is dead. Don't bother the teacher anymore. And then a woman whose um, uh, sickness has caused her social disgrace and ceremonial uncleanness, again, living a very, uh, a very difficult existence. Verse 25, a woman who was there had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She'd suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors. <laughs> That's a little interesting note that Luke, the doctor, leaves out of his account. <laughs> it's quite curious, isn't it? <laughs> suffered about, about many doctors, spent all she had, and yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. How terrible these experiences are to these unclean, these dying, these dead, these ruined lives, in living dead in a sense, living the tragedy and pain of human existence in a very acute way. Jesus has power to save, and Jesus is compassionate to save. He drives out the demons. The demons grovel before him, these mighty creatures that are so overwhelming this man's life and personality. Um, beg before him, anything, please, nothing. I send us into the, the pigs. The pigs will do, and, and then show how destructive they are in the, in the wreckage they bring upon the lives of those pigs. Uh, heals this woman who's bleeding, who in her need and faith dares to just reach out and touch him, takes initiative, and is healed passively by simply a touch in faith. And raises the dead with a word. Little girl, Talitha Coom, get up. 
Jesus is powerful, able to say, drive out those demons into the pigs that, that run into the, the waters. Um, heal even with a passive touch. Raise the dead with a word. And he's compassionate to save. Look at how beautifully this tormented man in the tombs is described after his encounter with Jesus. Verse 15, when they came to Jesus, they saw the man. He's a man. He's a human. And here is this human being who had been possessed by this army, this legion of demons, sitting there dressed in his right mind. Isn't that lovely? Um, in, in fact, uh, verse 19, um, uh, Jesus uh, said to him, Go home and tell your family how much the Lord has done for you and how he's had mercy on you. The bleeding woman touches Jesus is healed and Jesus said to her daughter your faith has healed you go in peace and be freed from your suffering she's liberated she's in peace she is like Jesus had said in chapter 3 one of the Jesus uh, brothers and sisters and mothers and daughters and children she is one who is hears and trusts God's word and then um, the the, the little girl, it's, it's like, here's this dead girl. What a terrible tragedy with the, the professional mourners marking the occasion in wailing and grief. And here Jesus comes in and, and like he's just waking up a kid who slept in a bit too late after being up late the night before, you know, at a party. Come on, little one, wake up. <laughs> Isn't that lovely? Takes her hand, lifts her up, and she comes back to life. He's powerful and compassionate to save. There's more stories of healing over in chapter 7, especially in areas that aren't the Jewish areas. They're not, this isn't the area of synagogue rulers and so forth, but this is the nations, the goyim. Um, and again, Jesus is powerful and compassionate for verse 24 uh, to 37. I mean, this is an interesting right, uh, one here. See, Jesus left that place, went to the vicinity of Tyre, 7.24. He entered a house and didn't want anyone to know it, yet he couldn't keep his presence secret. In fact, as soon as they heard about him, a woman whose little daughter had been possessed by an evil spirit came and fell at his feet. This is really emphasising she's outside the chosen people. She's a Greek. She's born in Syrio-Phoenicia. Um, she begs Jesus to drive out the demon. And, and Jesus seems quite shockingly stern, emphasising the special privilege of the Jews. He says, first let the children, that is the Jews, eat all they want. For it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to their dogs. Yikes. Um, but it's a strong saying to say, here's the privilege of the Jewish people. She gets it. She goes, yeah, I get the fact that the Jews are the chosen people, and I also get the fact that they will bless the world. So even if, I, even if we grant that I am a dog, so to speak, I can still lick up the crumbs, can't I? <laughs> and, and I can't help but wonder whether this gets a smile on Jesus' face to go, yeah, touche, well said, exactly right. <laughs> My thoughts exactly, yes, your faith. What great faith. What great faith. The problem is, of course, the Pharisees really do fancy they are the children up at the table. Children of the king. The healthy who don't need a doctor, right? The righteous, unlike the sinners. It would actually be better if they realised a little more how much all of us in our sin are not worthy. And uh, any gift from God is like crumbs from the table. Don't you care? They cried out at that first storm lake crossing. Well, yeah, Jesus cares. Who is this one? Is powerful to save. Similarly with the feeding of the 5,000 and the 4,000. There's lake crossings, like I said, and then there's these crowd feedings, these miraculous feedings. Another story, an obvious pair across these central chapters in Mark. Um, 
And bread is this metaphor that, that gets repeatedly used throughout this section. It's kind of a little thread that hangs the whole thing together. 6 verse 8, take nothing with you for the journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money, no belt. 6 verse 52, they didn't understand because they didn't know about the loaves. Uh, 7 verse 27, we were just talking about the bread whose crumbs drop to the floor and the dogs uh, can eat them up. And 8 verse 15 and 16, from the reading, you know, oh, Jesus is talking about the yeast and the leaven because we don't have enough bread. Bread, 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 bread. It's all through this passage. It's provision, isn't it? It's food, literally nourishment. It's life, isn't it? In a subsistence uh, culture, your bread is not just like, ooh, that's a fancy bit of a baguette or ficelle, actually, technically that one, or whatever. Oh, you know, interesting. It's got some raisins in it and some figs. Oh, lovely. You know, it's, it's not, no, this is just life. You don't have enough bread, you die. That's the kind of thing we're dealing with here, yeah? So it's, it, bread is a symbol of just being alive, not being dead. Being given bread is being given Life, yeah, that's what we're dealing with, it's life. But it's a richer metaphor than that, isn't it? The leaven is a cue to that. Why does Jesus use yeast as a, as a metaphor? Watch out for the yeast. Well, what's wrong with yeast? Like, yeast makes bread. Bread is good. <laughs> well, those of you who know Bible a little bit can think back to the Exodus, where one of the commands of the Exodus was, get ready to leave in a hurry. The judgment of God is coming upon Egypt. Get ready to leave in a hurry. You'll be rescued. So hurry. And so if the food you prepare, we don't have time to have a 12-hour loaf slowly rising in, uh, on the windowsill. It's like just, just wax and damper together and pack it, get ready to go. Yeah, Make, make bread without yeast. It was a uh, symbol of the hurry to rush to leave that then began to be celebrated when they memorized, remembered the exodus. The way they remembered it was in a, through the Passover celebration and they would eat again. This damper, this rush damper, you know, we've got to get out of here. But because that rescue was a rescue from the evil empire that was coming under judgment, yeast developed a new meaning, kind of understandably. It no longer just meant we're in a hurry, let's get out of here. It became let's get out of where? Egypt, the place of judgment, the place of slavery, the place of evil. And so yeast then develops a second sense, not just of uh, the rush to um, share in God's rescue, but also the leaving behind. And so the whole ceremony of searching your house to make sure there's no yeast in the house at Passover time um, is, is, uh, becomes then has this extra significance of all kind of, in this context, yeast is bad, yeast is what we're leaving, yeast is what we're going away from. Okay, so, so that, all that context, yeast is bad. <laughs> I mean, it's a really vivid image too, right, because of how powerful yeast is, isn't it? You know, just a little bit of yeast. Just, just, just spoon a little bit if you've ever made something like bread or a cake that uses a, a, a yeast. Um, it can cause like a, you know, five cups of flour to sort of triple in size. It's amazing, you know. Just it'll stir a little bit in and somehow get through the whole thing. Um, that becomes a pretty vivid image of, of sin too, doesn't it? The evil. You know, it gets through everything. So Jesus is using that metaphor, um, that idea of yeast as evil. Yeast is getting through everything. Watch out for this evil thing that the Pharisees and the Sadduce uh, Sadducees and the teachers of the law, they're like Pharaoh and his, his servants, that, you know, his magicians and everything. That because they've lost sight of God's grace, watch out for them. Yeah, that's interesting, right? Um, but that's, that, they, they don't get it. Because they don't get about the loaves, because they don't get the loaves go together with the water, and they don't get that, hang on a second, again, we're back with Moses, water and manna, huh? 
there's this whole background there, isn't there? Of crossing through the Red Sea with Moses, being fed by God in the desert with Moses. So there's this, this rich, evocative, cryptic, they didn't get it, riddle here of how Jesus is performing not just compassionate and powerful miracles, but symbolically profound miracles. Even in Mark's account, we get a little echo of Numbers 27, verse 17, where we hear about Jesus looking at these people and having compassion on them. Why is he having compassion on them? Because they're like sheep without a shepherd. Chapter 6, verse 34. It's like Moses looking at the people of Israel like sheep without a shepherd. Isn't that interesting? So here is Jesus like a new Moses, feeding a new Israel in the wilderness, crossing miraculously able to still and and cross the waters. Once more, he is compassionate, although he was tired, verses 31 and 32 of chapter 6, and he'd actually retreated to get some me time and some me and God time when the crowds eagerly follow him, verse 34, she sees this crowd has compassion on them. And so he feeds them. Again, in chapter 8, verses 1 to 3, during those days, another large crowd gathered. Since they had nothing to eat, Jesus called to his disciples, I have compassion for these people. Don't you care? Yes, I do care. They've been with me three days. I had nothing to eat. I don't want to send them away. I'm going to collapse along the way. I'll feed them. Salvation for the Jews, perhaps, in chapter 6, in a section that is particularly still focused on Uh, the Jewish areas, Jewish people, synagogue rulers and so forth. Compassion for the non-Jews, the 4,000 in chapter 8, in a section alongside the Syrio-Phoenician woman and discussion of clean and unclean. And so these miracles are meant to not just provide, meet a need, not just wonders that meet a need, but they're also signs that invite faith in what they signify. It's not just wonder-working, Jesus is powerful, or even just um, uh, good deed-doing, Jesus is compassionate, but it's also a sign provoking faith. Jesus is the new Moses, the Messiah bringing a new exodus, a new rescue, calling a new Israel. Have faith. There's always a danger that miracles uh, simply produce a chasing after practical needs. Jesus can do cool stuff, let's go get cool stuff. That's the same today with a miracle ministry that advertises the miracles. Come and get the cool thing. Or or it's kind of wonder-working. Wow, Jesus does specky things. Let's go and watch the show. Similar today if a ministry sort of promises, watch watch the the party tricks I'll do. Um, There's always that risk that, that the Bible talks often about this and challenges unbelief and challenges simple chasing after bread, chasing after miracles instead urges us to understand about the loaves, to understand the meaning of the miracles and to whom and to what they point. So that brings us to our second heading, and they'll get briefer as we move our way through because the second heading is quite a simple point. What's the right response to Jesus? It's not unbelief. <laughs> I'll tell you that. It's, it's to trust him, it's to believe in him. It's not unbelief. Uh, the, the disciples' unbelief bracket the section. Don't you care if we drown, teacher? God, why are you afraid? Don't you have any faith? Chapter 4. Chapter 8, verses 16 to 21. The, 
Um, oh, you know, you're talking about not having enough literal bread, Jesus. Oh, do you still have eyes but fail to see? Verse 18 of chapter 8. And ears and fail to hear. Don't you remember? Don't you remember how I did these miracles? Don't you remember I've done it twice? I did them so much there were leftovers. By the way, there is leftover pizza downstairs in the fridge if you want to use that as part of your lunch. Um, do you still not understand? Verse 21. 8 verse 21. And in between these unbelief and lack of understanding of the disciples, there's unbelief in almost every section. The Gerasene villages, when this guy is rescued, they're terrified, not excited. And they're upset about the loss of the pigs. That's what concerns them. The mourners um, at, the, at Jairus' daughter's um, deathbed laugh at Jesus when he, he says, oh, she's, I mean, understandably, it's an astonishing thing for him to say, oh, she's just asleep, I'm going to go and wake her up. Just slept in a little. What are you talking about, madman? Um, Jesus' hometown, chapter 6, verse 4. Jesus said to them, only in his hometown among his relatives and in his own household is a prophet without honour. He couldn't do any miracles there except lay hands on a few sick people and heal them. He was amazed at their lack of faith. They took it offensive and they go, we know Jesus, we grew up with Jesus. Like, it's just Jesus, whatever. Um, unbelief all through the section. Those who don't receive the disciples' missionary work, the dust will be shaken from the disciples' feet as they leave those places. 6 verse 11. Herod, in his superstitious reaction to Jesus, worried if Jesus is like haunting him, reminds us then of, uh, of um, Herod's uh, horrible, appalling uh, tyranny in killing the prophet John the Baptist. In a kind of a pretty creepy, gross story, right? He kind of gets out, it's, it's all a bit yuck. At least the death of a prophet, unbelief, and worse. Into chapter 7 and chapter 8, the focus is especially no longer on Herod or the Gerasene villages, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, who are not much better. Chapter 7, verses 6 to 9, they set aside God's explicit commands with their clever um, uh, sort of um, sophism fiddling around with, with um, rules and regulations. They think that what comes out from the outside is what makes you unclean, 7 verse 15. They are like the yeast that you flush out of your house um, in, in reminder of the escape from Egypt. They, they are a, a, an infection, a toxic thing. Verse 11 of chapter 8, the Pharisees came to ask questions to Jesus to test him. They're not asking questions to learn. There's another kind of question you could ask. These are just clever questions to show off how clever you are and try and shame the question answerer. They're doing that kind of questioning. They're wanting a sign, but it's just more. Nothing will convince them. It's just more sign. Give us more. Give us more. Yeah. The tragedy of the human race is that we could so miss our maker when he comes as our saviour, that we could get offended by him. We, we go, let's, let's cancel God. You know, it's uh, to test him, to dismiss him, to just not track with him, to just not follow what he's doing and saying. It's a folly that shows our limitation, but ultimately shows also our sin and our unbelief. To think that he wouldn't care about us. Don't you care, teacher? That we can't track with his teaching. But more than tragic and foolish, it's ultimately for us as a human race, shameful and wicked that we're hard-hearted to our creator we ought to worship and adore, that we're suspiciously doubting of our saviour who has come to rescue us. 
They were arrogantly sneering of a teacher telling us stuff we actually don't know. Outraged and defensive when he points the finger at problems that need fixing. Side by side with the gut-churning sleaze and violence of Herod and his uh, killing of John the Baptist is also the religious hypocrisy of the Pharisees and their power politics. How do you respond to God? How do you respond to Jesus? What's your spiritual, mental, emotional stance towards God and his promises and his commands? Defensive, doubting, or just holding God at a distance, arms crossed? Will you let God be God, or do you always run God through a grid of what you think is right, what the world thinks is right, what seems to suit you at the moment? Do you uh, put God not in the box of his word, which as we said yesterday morning, is actually that, that God's word is God telling us what he's like, but do you put God in, into the comfortable world of your traditions and what's familiar, yeah? Binding him with, with, with little rules and comfortable ways of doing things. Who's God, in other words? Is God God? Or are you kind of God that you'll let God be pet God when you need a bit of extra power or a bit of extra sentimentality? Don't be unbelieving, in other words, but rather believe. Like that demoniac who tasted firsthand Jesus' compassion and power to save, who actually wants to follow Jesus. Can I, I'll be one of your disciples now. Please let me come with you. And Jesus says, actually, I've got another way for you to follow me by staying here. And, and he's outside of Israel, outside of the Jerusalem and Galilee and so on. He's over in the Gerasenes. And Jesus says, no, you stay. And whereas over here, when I heal someone, I say, shh, keep quiet. There's a messianic secret. It's a part of my work in Israel. He says, no, you go and tell people what the Lord has done for you, which makes me think what the Lord God has done for you. So in chapter 5, 19 and 20, that healed man goes and tells what Jesus has done for him. Isn't that interesting? There you go. What the Lord has done for you, what Jesus has done for me. And he goes and tells as an, in, as an indication of what will be the case in our final brief point about the mission. A gyrus believes Jesus in compassionate power to save even remotely if need be. The woman, if I could just touch him, he's so good <laughs> and he's so great, if I could just dare to touch him. Or, or the, later on, the, the other woman who goes, look, even the dogs get the crumbs. <laughs> Maybe so as to make the, Jesus even smile, perhaps, at least to earn Jesus' approval. Yeah. Come to Jesus for help. Fall before Jesus, have mercy. Provide for us, Jesus, for you can. 6 verses 55 and 56, they ran throughout that whole region and carried the sick on mats to wherever they heard he was. And wherever we went, to villages, towns or countryside, they placed the sick in the marketplaces. They begged him to let him touch even the edge of his cloak. And all who touched him were healed. Jesus does everything well, the believers throughout this passage say. He is compassionate, he is powerful, he's amazing. Why would you hold Jesus at a distance and cross your arms? And go? I mean, it's one of the weird things, you know, when you do see someone come to faith from a non-Christian background and they just go, my goodness, this thing, do you guys realise this thing you have? It's amazing! <laughs> it's like when you go and visit a foreign country and they have a form of technology or food that you don't have in Australia. You just go, this! <laughs> Why is it? Where has this been in my life? <laughs> 
it's amazing. How much more? It's just like, my goodness, Jesus, he's awesome. You know, and, and then you, you look around them at, at, sadly, often people who've just kind of grown up in church, grown up with it, and it's so familiar that like the prophet in his hometown, you know how Jesus said in chapter 6, verses 4 to 6, it's only the hometown the prophet isn't recognised because he's so familiar we, we feel like we own him, we, we kind of despise him. It can be the same in the church, in Christian groups and youth groups, that the, the kid who hears about Jesus for the first time goes, this, this thing, oh my goodness! And everyone else is like, Jesus again, so boring. <laughs> um, when can we play Hungry Hungry Hippos or something? Something interesting. Oh my goodness. Um, to our shame, we fail to marvel and we need to pray, God, show me afresh, please. By your spirit, powerfully reveal to me again how amazing Jesus is. Of course, when you see someone come to faith for the first time, there are many others who are refreshed by exactly that same thing. So some might roll their eyes, but others go, wow, God, thank you in this person helping me remember how great this whole business is. Put your faith in him. Who else could you turn to? He may not grant you physical healing in this life or psychological healing in this life. There may be sicknesses, struggles, temptations that are persistent throughout this life. He didn't heal everyone in the first century either. But those miracles are a sign of the sure hope to come when he returns and the spiritual healing that comes to all who trust him compassionate and powerful, call to faith and then share that faith. Mission to Israel, mission to the world. That's our final heading. Two sections of Jesus' teaching in the middle of this are teaching sections. Yeah? I mean, there's going and telling all through it. We've already touched a little on that. Go and tell, go and tell. I mean, have we looked at 7 verse 36 to 37? Jesus commanded them not to tell anyone, but the more he did so, the more they went and talked about it. <laughs> People were over and amazed. He's done everything well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. <laughs> uh, there's lots of mentions of people hearing. 527, 6.14, 7.25. 5.27, 6.14, 7.25. Hearing the message about this Jesus. If you've experienced Jesus' compassion and power, if you've put your faith in Jesus, the compassionate and powerful saviour, then you'd want to tell others about it. It'll come out somehow. How it comes out, even if you don't talk much, you don't have many friends, it might be different, but you share that mission mind. In chapter 6, verses 7 to 13, the disciples have a special mission for Israel. It's got strict rules and some symbolic elements because it's like a last chance, last ditch prophetic mission to Israel now their Messiah has come. So that, that, that's, that's a special mission there, but it shows it's a taste of the mission that will eventually dawn with Jesus' resurrection. Um, uh, we get the given the mission, then we get the story of John the Baptist's death, and then we get the return from mission after that in 6 verse 30. They come back and um, they gather around Jesus and report to him all they've done and taught. Now I think, again, that's one of those little structure things. Maybe this stuff began as some sermons by Peter. And those little structure things, that, what, what's that tell you? Jesus sent them out on mission. Oh, by the way, there was John the Baptist, a prophet, who ended up getting imprisoned and then got his head cut off because of a sleazy king kind of got turned on watching a girl dance. Oh, and then they came back from mission. What's, what's that meant to be messaging to you? This is what can happen to the prophets of God. 
This is what will happen when you go on mission. This is what will soon happen, as Jesus says in chapter 9, we'll look at tonight, what they did to John, well, they're going to do to me. It's what's going to happen to the Messiah and any who are on mission with him. I think it's a, there's a little bit of a hint there of the potential for conflict and suffering for any who will go on mission like John and Jesus. Um, uh, there's the disciples' mission. And then the second one is talk about clean and unclean in chapter 7, this debate with the Pharisees and teachers of the law. Jesus isn't observing some ceremonial traditions. They're not even biblical ones. They're extra ones. They're upset by this. And Jesus uses it as an opportunity to say, um, amongst other things, you know what? Real cleanness and healing is not about ceremonies. Yeah, he calls the crowd to them in verse 14. Listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing that comes can make a man unclean by going into him, ceremonial things. Rather, it is what comes out of a man that makes him unclean. After the crowd left and into the house, his disciples asked him about this. More questions. Are you so dull, Jesus asked? Don't you see that nothing that enters a man from outside can make it unclean? It doesn't go into the heart, but only into the stomach and then out of the body. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. And he says, what's what comes out of our heart that really makes us unclean? That's what needs dealing with. But declares all food clean. So interesting, that little comment. And again, in terms of structure, as we go into a section of Mark's Gospel with the Syrio-Phoenician woman and the peoples beyond Israel, that's an interesting structural decision. As Jesus declares all food clean, we then see him act on that by giving the crumbs to the dogs, by feeding, just as he fed Israel, now feeding the others. Same kind of way. Same kind of miracle. The same Moses for Israel miracle. In the same section, he then declares the Pharisees and the Sadducees like the yeast of Pharaoh. Isn't that cool? That, that teaching hints at mission too. It's about dismantling the Old Testament ceremony and symbol and food laws that marked Israel out as exclusive as the children at the table, and says, man, we're all just getting the crumbs that Jesus throws to us, and we're all invited up to transform from dogs to children and sit at God's table. The metaphor is getting a little stretched now, isn't it? <laughs> but, but we're all now can be beneficiaries of God's grace, God's mercy, God's feeding, God's care, God's love, God's power to save. So then, as we're getting all through this conference, it's a conference of theology, Doing a lot of that, aren't we? But theology flows over into missiology, amongst other things, into mission. So it's a conference of mission and evangelism too. The gospel's for the world. This Jesus is powerful enough to save the world. He's compassionate as he looks out to the world as sheep without a shepherd. I've been blessed by the gospel. I want to bless others as I can. A beggar telling another beggar where to find bread as it has been put. What if I don't know many people? Well, it's partly, like Wilbur was saying, praying for opportunity and being open to others in my life. It's a different way of living your life. One way is to go, I'm good. That's one way to live your life. You know what? I'm good. I've got a nice family, got a couple of friends, play a little bit of squash, got my PlayStation. I'm good. I've got study to do, work, things to save up for. Um, I'm good. That, that's one way to go through life. Another way is, how can I do good to others? Who has God put me in my path? And again, depending on whether I'm a person who talks a lot or a little, has big capacity or not, I'll be looking outward to ask, how can I do good? 
beyond what I need to amuse and meet my needs to instead how I can meet the needs of others by just being open and prayerful for the even just the acquaintances and the strangers in my life. It can begin there. It can begin with being unashamed about Jesus and just, again, Wilbur was saying, it's a bit funny to say, hi, I'm Wilbur, I'm a Christian. But not far off that, it's good to be clear pretty early in your relationships that you're a churchgoer or a Christian or something. It's a little strange if we find ourselves knowing people for weeks and weeks and weeks and this thing that we say is so central to us is hidden. Yeah? Um, that's a thing to think about, you know. Am I open to the people in my life? Am I public about the greatest person in my life, Jesus, in some way or another, whether it's wearing a T-shirt or it's just talking about what I did on the weekend at church or saying, if God wills and I'll pray, just dropping in that kind of stuff into conversation. Yeah? Things like that can help. I can be concerned with God's mission in the world um, by praying. Again, not just I'm good, I'll pray for what my needs. God, please forgive me the thing I'm embarrassed about. Please help me with the exams I care about. In Jesus' name, amen. But also thinking, well, I mean, for years and years, I've been just using prayer points that come through CMS. Um, and, and just, you know, there's a little prayer diary you can get or you can sign on for online alerts and just pray for someone, a country, a day. You learn your geography. <laughs> you learn your missionary geography. Um, and you have a share then. In all these ministries, I'm involved in a lot of ministries in the world, did you know? <laughs> through my prayers, and sometimes through my giving, I've got all my fingers in all sorts of pies. It's really special what God allowed us to do through our prayers. Yeah, through our prayers, through our giving. Give to church, give to CMS, give to Uni Fellowship maybe, I don't know. But through your money, you're actually freeing up missionary resources. Do you, do you, have, you, have you taken that switch from going, pretty sure mum and dad give to church, to going, hang on, I'm an adult. Do I, out of my wealth, give to the church that pastors me and the mission work that I'm connected with? That's a thought. You can bring up questions of meaning and religion and significance in conversation. You can say a thing or two, maybe in a tutorial or a discussion, if you dare, when it gets close to Christian things. You can extend an invitation. And hey, you know what? An invitation to a church event or an Easter event or a uni fellowship event doesn't have to be really full on. It doesn't have to be like you're asking someone out on a date. You know, it's like, hey, Andy, I'd really love you to come to this event. And, you know, we've been talking for some time now and I feel like we have some good conversations. And, you know, I just feel, maybe we could go out for some, some coffee beforehand together and talk a little. <laughs> it could be that. Or it could simply be, hey, my church is running this thing. Would you like to come? Do you see what I mean? It doesn't have to be this heavily invested sales pitch. It can be a gentle offer. And some people will might get awkward by that. You'll be surprised how many people are either just fine, and it's just it's the biggest thing in your day that you've been terrified about. I'm going to ask someone who's not a Christian to come to a Christian thing. Ah! Oh! Um, and it's a non-event. <laughs> they might politely say no, or they might just politely say, oh, that sounds good, thanks. What, that's it? Yeah, that's it. I'll come, thanks. Now, whether they do or not, we'll see. But it, So it's just that getting into the habit of extending even just that light touch invite um, could be a thing. But let me close with one final appeal. Um, I'm conscious we've run, run out of time. But I do want to make a final larger appeal of, about your lives as a whole and uh, to start sowing the seed of perhaps one of us here or more might be those who give our lives to be preachers, evangelists, or global missionaries.
each generation, you're an emerging generation, each generation has its responsibility to bring the gospel to the world. It's now dawning to be your responsibility, your generation, to bring the gospel to the world. And metaphorically speaking, your whole generation of Christians need to get together and work out who's going to do what, <laughs> so to speak. Or God is at work by his spirit through you all, deploying you in who will do what. And he's doing that partly right now as a gospel preacher is talking to you about it. And the spirit is working on each of you as you're hearing me. Who's going to go to Asia out of your generation? The millions of the various parts of Asia. Who's going to go to Europe, East and West Europe? Who's going to go to the Americas, Africa, the Middle East? Who's going to go amongst, amongst your generation? Who's going to go? Who's going to train and prepare and raise the funds to leave their nets to fish for people and give their lives to that? Who's going to go to the great cities and megalopolises, to the villages and the hard-to-reach towns and nomads who will give themselves to theological education and translation, to evangelism? church planting, campus ministry. Who's going to go to the sensitive areas where we can't even say your name when we pray for you because of uh, persecution risks? Who's going to go to the poor areas where aid and just clean water are major issues? That you know The number of injections you have to get to go there is part, is part of the suffering for the gospel. Who's going to go to the rich secular areas where you need to have the answers to the tricky, complex questions. Jesus is powerful to save. Jesus is compassionate to save. He saved you. He saved me. And through us, he can show his power and compassion to Hobart, to Tasmania, to Australia, to the ends of the earth. Let's pray. Loving Father, we, we adore you and worship you for your compassion to us in Christ. Forgive us for our unbelief and for the ways we show our hard hearts and our sin and our uncleanness. Thank you for your, um, your grace to us and this extraordinary privilege to be your co-workers. Uh, very much the minor, um, minor party as you, by Christ ruling in heaven through his spirit, um, save the world. Use us, we pray, each one of us, we ask, this year and our lifetimes to bring you glory as we live and speak for Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen.